welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and it is so great to talk to all of you again today. Today, I have a really exciting interview planned. Like I've mentioned earlier, as I wind down on this particular project in this podcast, I am going to use my time, energy, and effort and platform to help give resources to folks who have been changed by this podcast. I realize that this podcast has affected people's lives in ways that are hard for me to even understand. I know it's certainly affected my life. So we're going to be focusing on the resources that exist for folks. I don't want to just deconstruct everything and then leave you with nothing. So we've got resources coming. We've got experts coming. We also have people that are still interested in sharing their story, their history, their experience. So we'll still have the history that you have come to love about this podcast. But today is a really special interview. I'm happy to interview the host of the Indoctrination podcast, Rachel Bernstein. You might have seen Rachel Bernstein on Star's new limited series about the Nexium cult called Seduced, the story of India Oxenberg as she leaves the Nexium cult. Rachel is considered one of the foremost cult experts, cult therapists in the country, and I'm really, really happy that she came on to this podcast and uh, is extending her resources. So I'm going to give you to our Zoom interview in just a minute, but if you're listening, I'd recommend you check out her podcast uh, indoctrination. And a special thanks to Jolie Holland, who is a mutual friend between Rachel and I and set this interview up. If you haven't listened to Jolie's music, we use it on the Sunstone podcast. Jolie Holland is an excellent artist. You can watch her Tiny Desk concert at NPR or just check out her music at jolieholland.com. So thank you, Jolie. You're fantastic. And thank you, Rachel, for coming on the Year of Polygamy podcast. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I am really excited and honored to be bringing an expert who I think can really help the listeners in this podcast understand and contextualize some of the issues that we talk about on this podcast. Rachel Bernstein, who is a renowned marriage and family therapist and considered one of the greatest cult experts working today in the field. Now we the the word cult is really fraught in Mormonism because it gets it gets thrown around all the time. And so I'm bringing her on to talk about her work with the Nexium cult. Uh, if you've been following HBO or Stars, uh, the Vow and there's the the one that you're on on Stars which we're going to talk about which which I really really loved about um, one of the survivors from the Nexium group. And the reason why I wanted to bring you on is I'm really committed to giving resources to people who listen because we've done a lot of deconstructing the Mormon stuff and I want people to know what resources are out there. And we do have a lot of breakoff groups in Mormonism that people consider the C word, as I say, as cults. So we're not applying this generally, but this does have some information. So if you feel like any of it resonates with you, uh, Rachel is so kind and giving her time and energy to do this, which is very generous of you. So, Rachel, welcome to the show, and thank you. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for having me on, and I am looking forward to answering your questions and hopefully being able to kind of explain things in a way that that comes across uh, in in a non judgmental, more uh, informational way. Because that's that is my way, 
Uh, and I think it's important for people to be able to know, as with anything, that uh, if they're hearing someone speak about their history or their opinion, they can take what they want and leave the rest, and that's their choice. Uh, so feel free to ask away and just let me know what you think your listeners would be interested in finding out about. Well, first, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and your background and sort of how you got involved in this in this topic? A lot of people who are involved in this field get involved because they themselves have had experiences in restrictive environments where they felt that their rights had been taken away or they were, you know, born and raised in in environments that uh, made them feel subjugated in one way or another, even within relationships and family systems. That was not my story. My story is that I have a family member who got caught up in a particular cult group that um, we're, we're fine calling a cult because that's what it is from start to finish. And what we noticed <clears throat> was the sudden personality change and the redirection of focus that became her entire focus. She spoke the language of this group suddenly and also started disengaging from the family and not trusting us, but only trusting them. I mean, it was a, it was a really stark contrast uh, within just a few weeks time. And we didn't know what was out there that could create this. We hadn't been introduced to the subject of cults. Uh, at the time, there weren't shows, there weren't exposés, there weren't uh, a lot of books about it. There were a lot of books written by cult leaders, <laughs> uh, but not about cults. So that wasn't helpful. And because it was sort of dinner table conversation, once we were able to kind of help to rescue her out, what I learned was that a lot of cult groups have front organizations where they use names that you wouldn't know is associated with that particular group but it's a way to siphon people into the group uh, and recruit new members. And I went away to college soon after we got my sibling out of this group. And then I saw some of these groups on my campus. They were part of the student union and welcoming students in. And I knew as soon as those students got involved, they were going to be leaving school because they were going to be told that they were going to have to make a choice between getting good grades or having a relationship with God, which I know happened with a bunch of people uh, getting involved in some of these groups. And the college had no idea that this was happening right under their noses. And then when I was going to school to become a therapist as a graduate student, I could see that there were some people in my program when asked what they would do to help their clients who were getting something out of the talking therapy but might need some extra help on the side that they were going to be referring them to groups that I knew were destructive, that I knew were dangerous, that had kind of a good reputation, but behind the scenes, bad things were going on. And I thought, I have to do this. I have to make myself available as a resource, especially if someone's going to go to a therapist and through their therapist, they're going to get involved in a cult. I need to, I need to be working this side of the fence. And so then to make this long answer even longer, uh, just the thing that, <laughs> the thing that really did it, which is interesting, is that I got my first job doing counseling not far from, uh, one of the main Scientology buildings in Los Angeles. 
and then had someone come to see me who had climbed out a window of one of the buildings. And I was unfamiliar with this whole scene. Um, it definitely educated me. And I guess someone saw her go back into that same window going back. And you're not supposed to seek therapy when you're in this group. And she was grilled to find out where she had gone, who she had met with. I then had someone sent to me posing as a client. And after that session, I got a full transcript of that session saying at the top, just to let you know, we're watching and listening. And and then there were two guys who I hadn't recognized who looked really scary leaning on my car when I left my office and they were hired by Scientology to kind of follow me around. I stayed home for a week and then I heard, I mean, cause the light, you know, the, the ink was still drying on my license. I was like 24 at the time and scared out of my mind. And then I suddenly heard my father's words, uh, which were, um, you can't let the bullies win. And so I showed up back for work on Monday and I think they were expecting to kind of scare me out of the work, but it lit a fire under me knowing that this is for some people what they're up against and they need backup. So I wanted to do this as backup. I think that's, that's incredible and brave and amazing. And what I really appreciate about your work and I, and I hope that we can have more people from our community sort of interacting with you is I've learned over this process, you know, I am not a credentialed expert. I'm a podcast host. And as I started doing this and getting involved with groups like the FLDS and the Jeffs family, specifically children of Warren Jeffs, the prophet of the FLDS, who is now in prison, uh, they needed resources. And so we were getting them therapy and things like that. But some of this, some of these issues are so specific and unique that like Mm -hmm. a regular therapist who isn't familiar with some of these challenges can't really understand or help help in the way that needs to be you know helpful and so to know that there are people like you who are specialized in this specific kind of trauma is really incredible so thank you for what you're doing oh well thank you for saying all those words and uh, and it is it is true it is it is different kind of counseling. It certainly is. And the way sometimes I guide people and the families of people who they're concerned about, you know, I need to guide them to interact with their family members in a way that really is counterintuitive. It's uh, doing an intervention for somebody who's in a cult is very, very different than doing a drug and alcohol intervention. You know, it's it's a whole other world uh, and a whole other way of interacting. And so you're right. Absolutely right about that. So let's kind of bring people up to speed. There's a lot of people that still don't know what Nexium is because now it's starting to, you know, it's made the news a couple times and now there's these documentaries out and I, and I want to talk about your involvement in them as well, but can you give sort of a 101 on Nexium, why it's being talked about now and sort of how, how you're involved in it, I guess. Right. Uh, you know, I, I wish I could say that, you know, I knew about Nexium from the start and I was on top of everything happening there and I was so aware. I was not. There are so many cults and new ones that I hear about every day. There's actually no way to be on top of all of them. But the way I found out about Nexium was that I got a call from Catherine Oxenberg, who I did not know, but whose name I recognize. And she said, I need your help. And 
my daughter's in this group. This is what it's called. I had been in it for a while. I got my daughter in. I feel tremendously guilty about that. But now I can't get her out. Um, what can you do? And I thought, well, I need to find out what this is. <laughs> and then maybe I'll be able to decide with her what I can do. And once I started studying it and I started watching videos uh, that were done by the leader, Keith Ranieri, you know, when, when you've been exposed in, in the work that I've done, you know, I, I've, I've even met some cult leaders, which has been interesting. But when you've seen how psychopaths, sociopaths, malignant narcissists work, how they behave, you can detect it. And it's like, you, you know, you're, spidey senses started start tingling and you can just tell that someone is really dangerous and they are a wolf in sheep's clothing and i watched him and i could see how charming he was and how innocently he came across and how to juxtapose that outward persona with what was happening from behind the scenes i could tell we were dealing with a sociopath and then the reason that um, I think, you know, Nexium has gotten so much attention is because, you know, of the branding, because it was it's being called this sex cult, which is an unfortunate moniker because I think it adds a lot of shame to people who are then saying, oh, I was involved in this group. And then people have this automatic kind of media driven association. They'll say, oh, the sex cult. But for a lot of people, that wasn't what it was about at all. And at the beginning, it wasn't about that at all for anyone. People got involved through, usually through ESP, their executive success program, because they wanted to be successful in their lives and they wanted to be strong. And it was also billed as women's empowerment. And this was a secular movement, right? Because that's important to, to note, like when we're going to be talking about Mormon, Mormon, uh, groups like this, mm -hmm. this, this was not a religious organization, right? Right. This is not a religious organization. This is something that is based upon a certain business model where people were learning how to be successful. And, and if anything, it's what we call kind of a, a psychological cult where they get into your head and um, push you psychologically to you know, have certain insights about yourself, etc. So no, there was no religion connected with it. But the only reason that I'm kind of delaying there for a moment is that a lot of people did start seeing Keith Ranieri as having otherworldly powers, which he promoted in terms of his reputation, that he was all knowing, all powerful, uh, a godlike figure. Okay, that's, that's super helpful, because in in Mormonism, as we kind of talked about before we were recording, cult, the word cult is so fraught. It's so fraught in our community. And I was like, I'm not going to use it in the podcast, but I don't know how to talk to you without using that word because it's it's relevant to what you're doing, to, to what Nexium is doing. And why don't we talk about that word for a minute? Because you talked about the shame of it being called a sex cult. And I know that the FLDS, I'm going to use them as an example because that's the one that everyone kind of signs up for as a cult. Uh, it's brought, labeling it that has been a challenge. Uh, fundamentalists who are getting out of the FLDS find the stigma one of the biggest obstacles to their growth and development. So how, how do we talk about this? It's a great question. 
I know that I've met some people who have left, who left that compound. I was in Austin working with the social workers at the time of the raid, which I, I, I can talk to you about how I think everything should have been handled differently, but they didn't ask me, but still that's another, another show. What I think is important to do is to have this sort of working definition and then for people to be able to decide for themselves if this fits. And I also will tell people to like families who are trying to intervene to help their loved ones get out of something to not get stuck on the C word because that becomes a point of tension and um, a distraction. Uh, and we, it's more important to talk about other things, but just to get to how I define it and from how I've seen it develop in its definition over the nearly 30 years that I've done this. These are the, the things that I think make something a cult and make it distinct then from a mainstream religion, a healthy organization, a healthy relationship. One is that you need to give unquestioning devotion to the leader and to the teachings. And if you question any of it, if you disagree with any of it, there's something wrong with you or something bad will happen to you. Now, that's also true for fundamentalist branches of every religion. So, but that is just one of the signs. And I would also um, say that shows up a lot in LDS Mormonism um, because mm-hmm. Mormon LD, the Latter-day Saint movement is so big. People want to say it's not a cult, but there are cult tendencies and and certainly in certain pockets and communities and cultures within the LDS community, you it's just not acceptable to criticize any leader. Right. And that is true. And so that's why this is sort of a multi-pronged um, definition. That, that, that just needs to exist in order for something to be called a cult. That's one of the many elements. The second is that it needs to become everything. Meaning, you don't have a, a separate life from it. You don't have um, relationships outside of it. You can't have thoughts that are different than the way you're supposed to think. You have a shared language where you speak the same kind of language. You have shared interpretations of certain Bible passages or the philosophy of the group or whatever else that you all agree upon. So there is this sort of common way of thinking and that you are dependent on the group to tell you at times what you're supposed to be doing, what you're supposed to be thinking and how you're supposed to be feeling about any given situation, about any person and the outcome of that for a lot of people is that they leave groups not knowing how to check in with themselves about how they feel. They don't know really who they are and what they believe in. And if it's their thought or someone else's thought, they have been in situations where they've had to merge with the group think or be dependent on someone else telling them how to think and feel. The other part that is, um, a really important piece of this that is for me this kind of distinctive line when people say, well, what about, because I'm Jewish. So what about orthodoxy? What about orthodox Judaism? You know, yes, this fits. And it will fit most fundamentalist 
sides or strict environments. But here's a major difference. Within cults, there's deception. If I, for example, wanted to become a strictly Orthodox Jew as opposed to conservative, which is what I am, I would know ahead of time what's expected of me. I would know what the rules are going to be. I would know how I'm supposed to dress and what I'm allowed to eat and who I'm allowed to spend time with and what I need to believe. But then I would be able to make a fully informed decision about getting involved or not. Within a cult, you are never told what is happening, uh, sometimes behind closed doors, what the true intention of the group is. And you then only find out in little bits and pieces after you're already in it, after you've already been kind of indoctrinated, after you've already been made to feel like if you question it, there's something wrong with you. So now you're seeing things that you didn't know were going to be happening and you can't have any kind of negative reaction to it. And it puts you in kind of this altered state of just needing to have this sort of blinder on and it can make you have this sort of otherworldly dissociative place that you're in a lot of the time. So the deception is a huge factor. The other part that makes something a cult to me is that the rules only apply to the followers and not to the leaders. So that the leader can do whatever they want. And it's all justified, explained away. And again, if you doubt it, if you have negative thoughts about it, something bad's going to happen to you. So they have this sort of zone of protection that they've built around them, where the people who are in their inner circle keep their secrets. And the people outside know that if they notice anything, they can't say anything. And they have to also keep it secret. And if it makes them upset, they might be punished by God or by the group or ostracized by the group. There's usually that threat of, of being kicked out if you're starting to notice something wrong or want to expose the secret. And there's also very strict behavior modification, not only in being told how you are supposed to behave and how you're supposed to act uh, throughout the day, but there's the threat that looms over people's heads within cultic systems where, again, if you are unhappy, if you are questioning it, one of two things can happen that are, for a lot of people, equally frightening. Either you're going to get kicked out and you don't know how to be in the world, or you've been made to feel fearful of the world or look down on the world, and you don't want to go there, and you know you're going to lose the connections that you have within the group, and you're not ready to be isolated, or you're going to deal with public shaming. You're going to be called on the carpet in front of people or be given a hard time in front of others. And either way, um, people then, because as human beings, we're equally afraid of both those things. We then find, we find in this field that they're very successful means of keeping people in line and keeping people quiet. And I think the, the other thing that really is important is that it becomes the most important thing. It's more important than your family. It's more important than you are. And when it's at the top, 
that means the leader also is more important than your family and more important than you are. And there's a very strict hierarchy where you then your own pain or your own wishes or attending your father's funeral or whatever else, none of that matters if there's an important meeting that the leader wants you to be at. And so it, it has risen to the top in terms of importance over everything and everyone else. That is so helpful. And what's interesting is I, it brings up some parallels with uh, a lot of people, I think, that are going to be able to identify with some of those things because I, it, it, let me ask you this. Is it fair to say that some of those things can be on a spectrum and in some ways uh, you've got the notches turned up on some aspects and on others it's it's lower? Does that make sense when I'm asking? Absolutely. Right. Because these are not machines, so they're not all programmed in the same way. A, a cultic group is run by a human being, and that human being is going to care more about certain things than others. That human being might be highly abusive physically, or they might be just manipulative psychologically or whatever else. That's going to change the group in, in those kinds of permutations that you're talking about. And some things are going to seem more important than others, and it is going to be along a spectrum. And so, yeah, absolutely. You're going to have a different kind of flavor in different groups. So you've been behind the scenes on all of this Nexium stuff and Scientology and all of this, but you make an appearance on Star's Seduced show, which people can stream on Stars if they find it's the story of, of India Oxenberg and her mom who contacted you, Catherine. And I put out a call for some of my listeners to see what they said. And Cadence Rudd said that she really appreciated your metaphor that you used in the documentary Seduced. Because you tell India, who is a victim, she's a survivor of the Keith Ranieri uh, cult. You you gave her a metaphor that you said she doesn't have to um, take on Keith's lack of ethics as her own, right? Mm-hmm. But that's that's really hard because in in our culture it's very patriarchal. We have these prophets, these leaders in Mormonism. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to be our examples. They're supposed mm-hmm. to be our our shining light. So when you're in these spaces, how do you not revere a leader to the extent that it becomes cultish? Does that make sense? Is it possible Mm -hmm. to support a religious leader or movement without turning them into God, basically? Uh, It's always possible. It's just that you might not, if you let on that, that, that you're not a believer that this person is God or has this omniscience or omnipotence, it's not going to go well if that's what the leader needs for you to believe. And also if the people within the cult or the group also see that that is sort of the most honorable way to be, you are going to get shunned and uh, it, yeah, your reputation will be sullied for having that kind of kind of gray area belief uh, rather than black and white. So it, it's always your choice to um, see someone as godlike or not in your heart. But I think a lot of people in cults find that they have to have this sort of cult persona, this outward persona that sometimes is not in line with how they're actually feeling inside. And, and when I work with people who have left cults, they will say that they actually find that they have to work to merge their personas back together 
because they had their inner thoughts that they couldn't share or they were worried even about thinking because they thought something, some entity could hear them. And then they had the outward persona of absolute belief and we will do anything for you. And, you know, yes, we revere you and we'll cry when you come into our presence. So, yeah, it is it is a possibility. I think people don't realize that it's a choice, though, because they're made to feel scared of not believing that way. And I want to feel I, I want people to be rest assured that you have the freedom to believe as you want to believe. And I think belief should be individual. And there isn't, from what I can see, a, a right or wrong way in terms of increased or decreased danger to you with the belief system. And I know that from working with people who have left, who were afraid of a lightning bolt hitting them or the devil getting them. And they're actually living kind of just fine and a better life. Uh, and had to get over the anxiety that was induced, the fears that were induced, but nothing bad has happened to them. The other thing I want to say about that though, is that within cultic systems where there is that black and white thinking that if you don't believe this way, something bad's going to happen to you. It's fraught with what we call false correlations. So that if you get sick or your child gets sick or something bad happens in the world, the cult will say, ah, well, that's because you didn't believe this or that's because you didn't pray hard enough on this and that's because of you. But that is absolutely a false correlation. But it does make people scared of going out of line. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I have been saying this for a long time now that in Mormonism, when you're faithful and something bad happens, it's a trial. You're being tested and God's going mm -hmm. to teach you something. But when you leave the church and something bad happens, it's a punishment, right? And God is now mm -hmm. cursing you. And, and that fear is so real. And this is what's wild talking to you about this because I don't use the word cold. I try to avoid it. And I defend that larger... Mormonism isn't a cult, but as you're talking, it's, mm -hmm. it's impossible for me to not think you said something about one of the things that keeps us in the fear is we're worried someone can hear our thoughts. And at least in my own experience, I was worried to doubt because I knew God could hear my doubts. You know, God knew what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. And it was so, mm -hmm. it was such a terrifying idea. I, I couldn't even, I couldn't talk about it out loud, but I certainly couldn't think it either. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, the, you know, I think what what's important are a couple of things having to do with that. One is when you're dealing with a cultic system, that's clearly a cult. One of the things that helps people when they leave it is for me to educate them about what a cult is and also about why someone would start a group like this and make sure that you could never question anything that he or she was saying, make sure that you would never feel like you could leave. And could it be because they really have the answer or could it be because they have this narcissism and a bottomless pit of ego need and that's what they're doing to you. And so it's always good to hold out that possibility that that might be why you're being made to feel fearful and why you're being made to feel like someone can read your thoughts and someone has ultimate power over you. And it could be that it's true or it could be that this is just the way they make sure to keep you there and keep you dependent on them and it's and it serves 
their kind of fragile core that needs to be reminded that, you know, they're special. I think that what's also important is that if you feel that God can read your thoughts and can read and knows your doubts, from my vantage point, uh, psychologically speaking, and I'll merge it with something spiritual because I was raised also within a religious community. If you believe that God created you, which you don't have to believe, but if you do, then God created your mind and God created your ability to have critical thinking. Otherwise, you wouldn't have it. And when we think about how over time we've developed and why we've hung on to the things we've hung on to, there must be a reason. There must be a reason for survival, I think. That if we have the possibility of, of organizing our thoughts, taking in the evidence of our senses around us, and looking at it, evaluating it, being critical of it, or being accepting of it, that's, again, if you believe in God as a creator, that was created by God for us. And so why would that be demonized? And part of what I've seen over and over again is that people's minds and their critical thinking and their ability to look at it, look at things clearly, well, that threatens a leader who is running something because they need to always be the smartest person in the room or the only one who's right. And so I don't want people to have to forfeit their God-given gifts just because it threatens the ego of the leader. I'm not saying that happens in every group, but you want to know that that's a possibility, that there are many cultic groups that will have as their mission, or the leader will have as his or her mission, to have people not think, and to have people not study, and to have people not research, and to have people just believe, just open up their heart. Because in that way, they don't have to deal with anyone questioning them or noticing hypocrisy or noticing that something doesn't quite fit and questioning them on it because they can't handle it. But it doesn't mean that by you having your critical thinking, you're doing something dangerous. You're just doing something that feels dangerous to the leader. That's so well said. And, and one of the questions that people keep asking over and over that they want you to differentiate, and I don't even know if it's possible, is... What's the difference between a cult and a religion? I mean, that's that's the discussion that Mormons become obsessed with, you know, because people that leave will say it's a cult. Not all people, but and people that stay say, say it's not. And that's why I think the Nexium thing is so interesting because Scientology, it's a religion. Nexium seemed like a self-help secular group and this can show up everywhere. So I know you've kind of answered that before already, but can you differentiate between religion and cults? Is that possible? Uh, yeah, I can try to, I can try. And yet, and you're right. It is, it, it goes into this gray area. And in terms of Scientology being a religion, it's interesting because L. Ron Hubbard, who started Scientology, was actually very um, open about the fact that um, he was just making it a church in order to get tax exempt status. And in fact, there is a cassette. I know I'm dating myself by saying cassette. <laughs> uh, there are a couple of things that he recorded 
in in kind of these bold moments where I think he thought that you know um, he could get away with this, and he did actually for a long time, and still they they still have tax exempt status. But he actually, in his voice on this cassette, says. If you want to make a million dollars, you have to start your own religion because he knew that was the way you didn't have to pay tax. He also said that if you want to enslave people, you need to promise them total freedom, which is a fascinating thing and also creepy because who wants to enslave people and why are you thinking about that? But if you need to promise them total freedom, that in Scientology, when you go up the levels, it's called the bridge to total freedom, which is basically the bridge to slavery in his definition, which is fascinating. fascinating. Oh, um, wow. So, so yeah. Um, but to go back to the defining the difference between a cult and a religion, many cults don't come in any kind of religious form at all. Even though, again, Scientology is called a church. It's as much of a church as McDonald's, right? They just make a profit off of you. Uh, what I think is important is to be able to say that within a religion, if there is a value system that is taught to the members, to the followers, things that are of the utmost importance, that are ethical, that are your moral guidelines, that means they need to apply to everyone. Or it's meaningless to say that it matters if it only matters to some people. So if you have a situation where you as a follower need to adhere to certain rules, but the leader ends up doing things that they shouldn't based on that guideline, then you have more of a cultic system. And the other definition that I want to come that I forgot about before is that within a cultic system, it's not part of mainline religion. It, it usually like with a compound, it doesn't answer. And, you know, Warren Jeffs doesn't answer to anyone. He eventually had to answer to the law, but there's no one watching what's happening. So they can kind of do what they want. And so there are no safeguards and that's a problem. And that's one of the definitions of a cult that it operates independently and no one's, no one's watching. And the cult leader knows that. So here, if you have a system where the followers need to adhere by certain rules and values and morals that the leader does not, that to me is a cultic system. And also, if there's the deception, if only after a while you find out what the leader is really up to or that they're using the money that they're taking from you that they said was for a certain cause, but really it's to buy their fourth house, where you are not treated in with the even the minimal amount of respect where you're given the truth. That to me is a cultic system. And I think also, if you are wanting to do the thing that feels most right to you in your conscience, but you're kept from it by the group, because in that moment, you're not doing something to further the goals of the group, but rather doing something maybe that seems selfish for you, that seems like a cult. For example, I know there have been plenty of people I've talked to who have left restrictive environments like this who said, I feel terrible. I missed going to so-and-so's wedding or my sister's whatever or my father's funeral, which is an actual thing that I heard just this week. And I was told that I needed to stay back because it was my turn to make food for all of the members or to set up chairs for the next Bible study. And 
And those are the choices I needed to make because it was more important than anything else. But my conscience was guiding me in the opposite direction. If what's happening in the group is encouraging you to go against your conscience, then I think it's a cult because it should be that a group that you devote yourself to also is one that's going to be in line with your conscience and not in opposition. And that if you do something that you think is right, or you want to do something that you think is right for you, for your family, but instead is seen as selfish, then I think you really want to step back and look at this group and see if it's healthy or not. The other thing to notice, and this is a difference between a cult and a religion, with a religion you can study, you can have other teachers, you can have other sources of information, you can have other pastors, you can have other rabbis, you can have other imams, you have other ways of synthesizing information and getting gleaning what you can from, you know, wise people throughout history. Within a cult, there's only one source of information, and that's the leader. All other sources are less than or false. And so you become totally dependent on that person and what they say, what they teach, and their interpretation of it only. And you're also not supposed to look at anyone who's been critical about the group, any article, any show, talk to people who have left to find out what they left. You are made to really keep your blinders on. And within a religion, you don't have to. Okay, well, that's that's helpful. And certainly there's a lot of crossover for that in Mormonism, which is why I think people that leave will use that word. It, it, you know, people find that offensive, but sometimes it's just a good descriptor. A question that keeps coming up a lot is, and these are mostly from ex-Mormons, they say, how do you separate your identity from that? How do you, someone said, what are some tips for processing post-cult shame, specifically the sense of a person being duped by someone who now they see as completely mediocre? How do you separate yourself from that when it became your identity? I I love the phrase uh, mediocre because, yeah, you know, that people can develop this aura around themselves and you look at them like they're from on high. And oftentimes there's social psychology with that. When you are involved in something and other people just seem charmed by someone you think you're supposed to be charmed by them, or if they uh, stand up and start clapping, as soon as that, you know, person comes in the room, you think, wow, this person must be special. doesn't mean they're special at all. It just means that they've trained the people there to do this because they need that kind of attention. Unfortunately, the people who who believed in someone who turned out to not be who they promised to be are the ones who leave doubting themselves, feeling shame, wondering if they can trust anyone again, and wondering if they can trust themselves because they followed a false prophet. And so what I want people to know is that there's nothing wrong with you. Your openness and your wish to be a part of something, your wish to do something that felt important, to believe the quote-unquote right way as it was presented, uh, are all really wonderful qualities. Problem is, they can be taken advantage of. And so for the people out there who have the propensity to want to give over so much to a leader, you want to be careful, doesn't mean you can't do it, but you only want to give over that power to people who deserve it. 
And so that's when you need to do your research and find out if that person has been sued, if uh, there have been shows about this, if other people have complained, do your research. And that's not you being doubtful and that's not Satan or whatever. That's you just being smart in the world. But the shame, really, I wish I could take away because all it means is not that you were gullible, not that you were stupid in any way. It means you're a human being who was open, who was either raised to be open in that way or who was searching. A lot of people get involved in groups, not because of something wrong with them, but the timing. They were having a hard time in their lives or they were recently diagnosed with something or they recently had a loss in their family and they were needing the answers. Uh, and so we are open at different times in our lives to different influences and different people. And what you want is you want to still be a person who's open to devotion, if that's important to you, but not unquestioning devotion. Ask your question and find out about someone before you're open to them. The thing is also, two other things, when people haven't learned about kind of the C word and they haven't been in one before, they don't know what to watch out for. They don't know that they've, as soon as they walked in the door, they were getting involved in the sort of well-oiled machine of manipulation. And when you don't know what that looks like, you won't know what's happening because it's very subtle. And so again, there's no shame in that because I could see some shame if someone had come up to you and said, Hey, listen, I run this group. Um, you're not going to be able to think for yourself and you're going to have to say goodbye to everyone who's not a part of it. And, um, you're not going to have rights. You're not going to be able to say no. Um, you won't really know how to trust yourself in the world outside. You're going to be scared of the world outside. Want to get involved? <laughs> then I could see you might feel a little shame and say, sure. But you're never presented with all the information. That's going back to the deception. Especially you if you're born that. into it, right? If you're born into right. a system. Exactly right. If you're born into it and you've been conditioned. And and you also know it's wrong to question it. And and I think it should the people who knowingly do this to other people, the leaders who who know that they are kind of telling a false narrative, they're the ones who should be um, carrying around the shame of what they've done because they're the perpetrators. The victim should never feel shame. They should, I hope, say, what, what can I learn from this? What did I learn from this? And now what do I need to watch out for in the future? And that's it. I really appreciate that. And, you know, when I watched the STARS documentary with India, I noticed that she, it seemed like she kept trying to apologize for her participation in the cult. And same, same with the vow. Like people were saying, we didn't know we we're not weird, you know? And as a viewer, I was like, of course, of course, like, I don't blame you, I, you know, but when you're in it, it's a different feeling that shame is really hard because you're, you're kind of judging yourself. How could I allow myself to think this? How could I allow myself? Sure. How could I allow myself to think it? How could I allow myself? to to believe it how could i allow myself to ignore some of the things that i noticed along the way that i really was encouraged to ignore but shouldn't have and because they're always red flag there is things that you notice that again get explained away or you again are trained to think there's something wrong with you for thinking it but they're always warning signs pay attention to them 
What's also hard is that a lot of times people within cults are, are encouraged to do things that are not kind to each other. And that's some of the shame afterwards where people are taught to kind of rat each other out. Cults are really gossipy and they're really judgy. And the leader loves getting info, getting intel about somebody who didn't do what they were supposed to be doing. And, you know, and you raise your stats in the group by telling on other people. Well, a lot of people have shame about that. But does that mean that they were bad people or does that mean that they had to learn the system? And that's how you survive within the system. I think it's how you survive. You shift your behavior to survive. But again, for a lot of people, they realize they went outside their conscience. And so when you're encouraged to do something outside your conscience, then you know the group itself is not a healthy group. I want to shift gears for a minute and talk about polygamy since that's kind of this the subject of this podcast. When I was watching about the Nexium cult, it, it was really interesting because I was literally at that time, I, I we're going to have you come speak at Sunstone this summer. We're going to fly you out and it's going to be amazing. But I was writing a podcast for the Mormon history podcast that we do at Sunstone. And I was writing about early Nauvoo, which is where our founder, Joseph Smith, starts introducing the practice of plural marriage and polygamy. And I was literally typing that as I was watching this documentary. It just happened to be that way. And I'm like looking at my computer, watching the thing, looking at the computer going, oh no, this is very similar. Why Why does polygamy happen? How does this element happen? I mean, we talk a lot about sex cults or whatever. It's still hard for me as a Mormon to even say that in conjunction with Mormonism. I'm very protective uh, of the way that I was raised. But why does why does sex factor into this at all? How does that happen? Right. It's a good question. And, and also just to clarify, just as you're trying to also be very clear about it, um, I think, you know, I have uh, clients, I have friends who are Mormon, who are very happily Mormon and um, multi-generational Mormon families um, who have only found love and support and wonderfulness. And so that is there. And I acknowledge that and I know it. And what we're talking about are these other parts of it that wind up being problematic. And so why does that happen where there is uh, a man and lots of women suddenly for this one particular man? So sometimes it's because there is, according to some people who are, um, who are religious, that there is biblical precedent for it. And they'll go back to when this existed and when it seemed okay. And it, when it seemed okay in God's eyes. Uh, I think the problem is that sometimes it's explained away. Uh, in religious terms, when really it's for some people just a way of gaining more power over others, for men to be able to have the choice of being with other women, which is what I think a lot of men wish for and fantasize about. I think monogamy is harder at times for men than for women, and it's just a wiring issue. Uh, and so I think for some people, they have developed this within their particular groups 
and give it this um, kind of explanation that it's for people's benefit or it's being specially chosen or it's going to look good again in God's eyes or uh, for some people where it's not a religious organization, but it's a psychological cult or whatever else, it's a test. It's a test to see if you can handle, you know, not being jealous. And that does actually happen within religious communities too, that somehow it's for your betterment and for your, for uh, an ability to show that you're willing to make that sacrifice. And so there, it's like a word salad of different explanations and justifications. And I think ultimately for a lot of men, and again, there's some cult leaders who are women, it's equal opportunity employment here. And they will often have lots of men suitors who feel specially chosen to be with them. I think it's a way of claiming people and it's a way of mm, making them it's like reinforcing the hierarchy. A, a, a cult has a very strict hierarchy. And if you are able to be chosen to be a sexual partner of the leader, then you feel you've reached the top of your capability uh, that's offered to you within that particular cultic group. It's not always such a pleasure though. And day to day, it might not feel like it's such an honor, but you need to go along with it as though it is, and you need to be fine with it. And I think you also need to feel um, uh, kind of indebted because you've been chosen in this way. What what can you do? What can you sacrifice in order to give back? And I think there's some people who love setting up other people in that situation where it's this, um, it's a, technique of influence called reciprocity. If I give you this special role, what are you going to do for me? How many children are you going to give me? Uh, how, how much are you going to make me look good? And so for, unfortunately for a lot of people, it's very selfishly driven, even though it's presented like it's a gift for you. So are you saying that sex is just another mechanism that is used for control? So it's always usually about power more than it is about gratification or anything like that? I think that there are probably some moments and with some people where it is um, that they're enjoying each other physically. But I do think for a lot of the people, a lot of women I've talked to where they knew that there were multiple partners and other partners of the leader, they felt special at times, but at other times they, they used the word claimed. They felt claimed. They didn't feel that it was romantic. They didn't feel that it was loving. Um, they felt like an acquisition. They felt like they were going to be kind of shown and kind of touted as part of the treasure that, you know, their kind of pirate collected uh, and not really as full human beings who were going to potentially have some feelings about this. And in some groups, they're not given a choice. It's such an honor that you're chosen that you don't even have an opportunity to say what you would like. And I think then for a lot of the the girls and women in these situations, they have to be okay with it. And I think they have to feel like they're enjoying it. But a lot tell me that they didn't. They did it 
first because they got some really wonderful attention and their family was seen as more honorable. But ultimately, this isn't the life they would have chosen for themselves. So in in the work that we do with this podcast and at Sunstone, we've identified over almost up to 500 different extant expressions of Mormonism groups, you know, including the LDS church. It's one of them. There's over 500. We keep breaking off. And in my work, I see all of these. I've seen both. I've seen a prophet declare himself prophet, start a new movement, start a new doctrine and bring on women or whatever. And in our, I know it goes both ways, but in the Mormon tradition, it's usually patriarchal. I know of only one instance where a woman claimed multiple partners, but I, so we have men starting it, but we also have a lot of groups who have been practicing polygamy for generations. It's the chain has been, um, uncut from Joseph Smith who, who instituted it. Is there a difference to people who are born into it? And it's, you know, now it's become completely part of their culture and their lifestyle versus people who join. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, in terms of the polygamy or just in, in, in yeah, in terms of polygamy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When um, I'm just going to write down a word here because I think it's a pivotal word here uh, that when you are raised in an environment where certain things are seen as the ultimate and then your life is going to be crafted around getting you to that place. Being someone who would be the kind of girl or woman who the prophet would choose. And then it's hard for you to really be able to be yourself. And I think you don't know who yourself is. I know that wasn't good grammar, but it's for a lot of people who say, I don't know who I am when they leave this group. And I, I think that ultimately it's important for people to, to, be, to be able to develop and find out what they want and what they like. But when you're born and raised, again, in an environment where that is considered the ideal to be chosen by people who are the prophet or the descendants of the prophet, then it doesn't matter what you want. And you don't get to find out what you like and what you want. And I think that's problematic because if people then leave it or if the group falls apart, you have a lot of people who are suddenly walking around leaderless and don't know how to be in charge of their lives. And so I think it's a, it's a handicap while it's being treated as a gift that you're being given. Same thing happens in fundamentalist branches of other religions. And I'm thinking of the ultra Orthodox in Judaism, you know, where you are groomed to be the bride groomed to be the bride. And hmm, it's interesting. That would be a good title of a book. Anyone can use it. I'm not going to own it. (laughs) Um, And uh, what, what I think is important though, no matter what, whether you come into it later on, uh, and it's something that you've chosen, or if you were born and raised in in it, I think the problem and the pivotal problem for me is the lack of choice. Because if you don't have a say, then you are being treated then like an indentured servant. It's something you have to do. I think that that becomes, for a lot of people, 
the thing that causes them to feel depressed, the thing that causes them to feel kind of hopeless of ever really having the life that they wanted, and also leaves the women without power. And I think, again, there's something inherently dangerous when you have a situation where one gender holds all the power or most of it, and the other gender holds none. So for me, it's an issue of choice. If someone is born and raised in this and the ultimate is to be one of this, you know, a sister wife, I still think you should have a choice. And you shouldn't have to feel shame for choosing to say no, and you shouldn't be ostracized for saying no. That's the important part because I think in our culture, everyone, I hear it all the time, even in polygamous communities, but they always have a choice. They always have a choice. And in Mormonism, in LDS Mormonism, the tradition I come from, I would say the the parallel, since we don't practice polygamy, you know, uh, I guess here on earth, we do in heaven in the LDS church, but here on earth, men and women are pressured to go on missions, but men specifically, and they're given a choice, but it's not really a choice because of all of the you know, penalties that would happen if they did whatever else they wanted to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, right. Exactly. Right. And how do you, how do you define choice? Right. When something really isn't a choice. I mean, it's a way to cover yourself if you're running a group by making people feel that they're making a choice and by telling them that it's their choice. But if like with this front group for the cult that I saw uh, that was on my college campus, I know someone who got out of that group and said, that she couldn't come to the Bible study that night because she had finals the next day. And so she was given a choice. And her choice was between getting good grades or having a relationship with God. So is that really a choice? And so I think it's the same thing here. A choice that that's only posing as a choice. Well, I've kept you long enough. I want to ask one more question and then let's talk about your projects and how people can find uh, your work and your podcasts and things like that. What would you say to one of the most heartbreaking questions that I got was, what do you say to people who have left and know that there's no apology or justice coming? Mm -hmm. Yes. So this is why the trial of Keith Raniere was so monumental because it's so rare, all too rare, that a person who does this to other people pays the price for it. Our system is set up, unfortunately, in a way that protects the cult leaders more than it protects the followers, protects sometimes the abusers more than the abused. And So there are people working on changing that. But any trial like this helps to set legal precedent, which is very important. But a lot of people who were involved in groups having nothing to do with Nexium found it very healing that he's having to pay a price. So what you want to do is similar to leaving an abusive spouse who or, you know, uh, even emotionally abusive spouse. Um, I don't know which which is worse. You're not going to get an apology because they're not interested in how you feel. And they also have set up a system where they don't have to take responsibility for what they've done to you. 
and they feel justified and the group protects them from having to take responsibility. And so they've set up again, this whole well-oiled machine. So you're not going to hear you're right. I'm sorry. And you're not going to hear, I feel terrible. What can I do to make this right? Um, and what that means when you don't hear it is not that you don't deserve it. You do deserve it, but it's a, it shows the other person's limitations, their inability to do the right thing, their, their constriction of conscience and that they're not equipped and not interested in being good people. Uh, and so it, I think, I guess I want you to see the lack of when people don't take responsibility and the lack of the apology as a sign of how much that other person is handicapped um, and handicapped in being able to be good people. And not that you have to feel sorry for them, but don't take it personally because it's not about you. It's not that you didn't deserve an apology. Again, it's that that's not the way they're wired. They're not interested and they don't want to take responsibility for anything that they've done. So for some people, what they do is they kind of give themselves the apology. They have the conversation in their head with the person who's done this to them, imagining how they want that conversation to go, scripting what they need to hear from that other person. And, um, and sometimes people do role play with people and someone can pretend to be the, the abuser or a cult leader and say the things that they need to hear. Um, but it also is just a really good thing to remember when you don't get the apology again, that it's not because you didn't deserve it. But it should never be that you find yourself in a situation where someone has wronged you and they just leave you bleeding on the side of the road and drive off. And that lets you know that that can happen in this world. It's rare, but it can happen in this world. And you don't want it to happen again. And you want to then know what to watch out for and who to watch out for so it doesn't ever happen again. Well, this is also great. I really appreciate you making time. Like I said, I know that your time is very valuable and that's why we're going to COVID permitting. We're going to try to bring you out to Sunstone this year because I mean, so many people want to talk to you from our community. There's just, you're going to be, we're just going to have to set a barricade or something because people really, this is something that people want to talk about and they, and they need these resources. So you have given these resources um, publicly, you have a podcast. Um, why don't you talk about your publications, your podcast, and the projects you're working on? How can people find more resources? Yes. Yeah, so, um, right. So, my podcast is a weekly podcast. It's just public service. I fund it. <laughs> I'll see how long I can do that for. Um, you take donations? Y- yeah. Uh, that would be wonderful. I mean, I started it not knowing if it was going to be a thing and, you know, and that's why I wasn't even thinking about getting funding and it kind of caught on like wildfire. So I want to keep it going. And there are people who are constantly contacting me saying, can I be a guest on your, on your show? I feel like I'm ready to tell my story. So I want to keep it going for them. So yes, if people go to Patreon, 
patreon.com slash indoctrination, they can become a supporter of the show for any amount. And that will really help keep it on the air. The The money I make on Patreon only still pays about half of my costs. And so the rest just comes out of my savings. And so, yes. So please feel free if you think that it's been helpful to you or will be helpful to other people. Yeah. Patreon.com slash indoctrination. And the reason that I call it indoctrination is, and not, you know, all about cults is because it's not always about a cult and it's about the nature of the relationship between the leader and the follower. Did they play with your head without your consent? Did they take over that part of you, that, that sense of self, your decision-making power, your rights, your voice, again, without your knowledge and without your consent? And how people get that back, how people free themselves from it is um, always the most important part of the story, I think. So the other uh, the other way to find me is through my website, rachelbernsteintherapy.com. And you can email me at BernsteinLMFT, my license, licensed marriage family therapist, at gmail.com. Um, and I'm on the advisory board of the International Cultic Studies Association, through which I do some workshops, um, also freebies. <laughs> you know, you don't get paid for these things, but whatever. It's still good and it feels right to do it. Uh, but they have great resources and books and workshops and conferences now virtually, but it's available to people. And there's something I helped to put together that now I've let in other people's hands because I've been too busy to continue on that board. But it's an organization and it's called Stronger After. And it provides people with five free consultations. Uh, I want to say it's just shy of a therapy session because it's more about cult education or just learning about maybe what happened to you and why you're having those feelings of guilt or shame and all of it or trying to find your way and having a hard time once you've come out of something that you were raised in or come out of something that you got involved in later on in life and you need some initial help. And again, it's five free consultations and you can find it under um, stronger after stronger um, than underscore and after. And so if you have trouble finding it, you can email me or just be in touch and I'll, I'll help you find it. So there are resources And unfortunately, there aren't as many resources as there are people who need them. So if anyone listening wants to be a resource because of their experience, feel free. And if you want to know how, get in touch with me. Well, I really appreciate that. And as a woman in this space who I'm always, it's so hard for me to ask for money. It's so hard for me to ask to support my work because I don't want to replicate some of the things that harm me. And I can see that you're being careful about that as well. But you guys, if you're listening, this is such a good effort to support because Rachel is doing, you know, what we're doing in small ways on a larger scale and paving the way for folks like us to uh, have access to these things. So if you're listening and you're in a position to support, support her podcast, send her some dollars. Uh, it's something that needs, we need more eyes on this. We need more experts on this. So I really appreciate you taking your time. Uh, she's doing this for free. You guys, she came on my podcast for free and she shouldn't. She's she's an expert who uh, who deserves to be paid for her work. So please, please go support her work. And Rachel, I really hope we can make it work to bring you out this summer because that would be really amazing. 
That would be amazing. And and I want to do a right back at you because what you're doing is really, truly amazing. And I think you're doing this really lovely and respectful job of finding a place in the middle where you're not saying something is all bad or all good. You're saying, let's look at this. It has the potential to be all of these good things, but there also could be some things that could be problematic or have been, and let's discern what they are so that you can understand why it had that impact on you or how to protect yourself from it in the future so you can continue just having a good and healthy experience within it. That's so well said. So thank you. Is there anything else you want to leave listeners with before I let you go? Uh, yeah, I think just to be able to let people know that um, uh, I'm open also to learning from people about their experiences. And if they want to let me know what they've experienced that's been uh, like what I've talked about or has been different from the way I look at it. I, I want to learn from you. And um, that's how we all grow together. So I would really appreciate that feedback. Um, but I think also uh, the reason that it's important to have these kinds of podcasts is this message that I think is so important. Um, you are not alone in your experience. And even if you go to a therapist who doesn't understand what you're talking about, it just means that you're you're not terminally unique. Uh, it just means you haven't found the therapist who has studied this. And if you talk to someone about it who seems to be judging you, they're just not the right person to talk about it or they just don't understand the subject yet. There are people. There are people to talk to who get it, who will nod their heads while you're talking. I also have an online support group um, once a week for former cult members. And that's my favorite part when someone says, oh, I was raised in a cult. You probably haven't heard of it and no one has heard of it. But the things that happened were so similar that everyone is nodding their heads and saying, yes, I get it. Yeah, that's exactly what happened to me too. So there's a big connection of people out there and nobody should feel alone. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for your work. And it's, I know what it's like to be in trauma spaces. It's not easy. It takes a toll. So again, just one more plug. If you guys are listening, go support her work. She's doing great things. And you can see her on this new stars uh, documentary called seduced. And uh, I would recommend watching that about India's story. The Nexium thing is so fascinating. It is. Oh, and I'm so glad that he's getting what he deserves. Oh, I can't tell you how healing that is for so many people. <laughs> That's so okay. great. Well, yeah. thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. It was, uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you and also to get to know you through this process. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.